Well, Tom is away on vacation, and um, it's a joy and privilege to be able to continue our study in 1 Corinthians with you all. Um, And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But I want to catch you up a little bit in case you haven't been here or tuned in. You may recall that two weeks ago, we were in chapter 12, and there Paul began this discussion that covers three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, in which he talks to us about the spiritual gifts and their use in the church. And he began with this letter to the church in Corinth this way, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And after listing several examples of that, he then spends the remainder of that chapter explaining how every individual was given a gift from the Lord for the purpose of building up the church. And he illustrates that by saying that the church is a lot like a body, which is composed of many members, each with a different function, and yet all serve the same singular body. And so we have unity even in our diversity. But many within the Corinthian church were using their gifts not for building up the congregation, not for the benefit of the community, but for their own sort of self-serving purposes. And so Paul is writing to correct that, and, and, and the Corinthians began to exalt these gifts, especially those that were most especially serving them, the, the things that most gratified and excited them in worship, if you will, whatever contributed to their own individual worship experience above other gifts that, for instance, prioritized the building up of the community. And as we'll see in today's passage, this was especially so in the case of one gift, that is the gift of speaking in tongues. Because of its mysterious nature, because people couldn't understand what was being said, it seemed to be this, this awe-inspiring, spiritual, just supernatural thing that would happen. And so these people sometimes were put on pedestals. They were looked to as possessing the supreme gift. And as a result, then others in the church began to compare their gift, say, of hospitality or wisdom with this great gift of tongues. And they grew covetous for what they deemed that supreme gift. And to relate this to today, it shouldn't be a terribly difficult argument for us to understand. Do we not at times compare our gifts with others? Do we not sometimes compare our ministry or our particular area of of work and giftedness with another in the congregation? I think we're tempted much as they were because it's our human nature. And yet Paul dedicated all of chapter 13 to exhorting the church to walk in the way of humble, self-giving, agape love. We talked about that last week. Because love is not self-seeking, he says. And so finally in chapter 14 today, he'll draw this whole discussion to a close by telling us to desire the greater gifts. And here's how you'll know. He essentially says, which is the greatest gift? It's the one that is most edifying to this church community. Not necessarily the one that is most gratifying to you as an individual, but whatever gift it is that would support and, and build and sharpen the community of faith, that is the gift to be most desired. And in particular, he'll talk a lot today about tongues and prophecy. So um, those are not things that we're real familiar with in this church, in our particular tradition. I want you to know, however, that the vast majority of the church globally 
is of a Pentecostal tradition, which for them, this would be normal discussion, tongues and prophecy. So many of your brothers and sisters in the faith um, exercise these gifts so regularly, and so it's good for you to be informed and understand um, sort of what limits and, and, and allowances Paul gives on these things. And so I'm going to just try to quickly explain and set up what Paul's about to talk about. Um, tongues, we can understand as a type of spirit-governed prayer that manifests itself in languages otherwise unknown to the speaker. And sometimes that plays out like this. I begin speaking a language, let's say German, that I don't know, and someone else in the congregation who knows that language will be able to interpret and hear what I'm saying. There are other occasions, though, where it seems in Scripture that this, this is more of a spiritual language not known to man. But in any case, some in the Corinthian congregation had so exalted this particular ability because it maximized their worship experience, if you will, that they seemed to lose sight of why God commanded them to gather together for worship in the first place. And so Paul is going to address that. Secondly, he's going to talk about prophecy. And what do we know about prophecy? Well, I presume that most of us tend to think of prophecy as a prediction of future events, some divinely inspired vision, if you will, of the future. I had a dream last night that 40 days from now, Michael Jordan came out of retirement and filled Dwayne Wade's gigantic shoes and led the Miami Heat to a finals victory in 2017. I have prophesied unto thee. And while there are, of course, times in Scripture when prophecy does function as a predictive word, that's not the only way that prophecy functions in the church. To be more precise, the word prophecy or to prophesy actually means to speak forth. And in our New Testament church context, it means the communication of the mind of God imparted by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church. Let me read that again. That was a mouthful. The communication of the mind of God imparted by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church community. Well, how do we know the mind of God, you may ask? Well, it's through His Word. And thus, to speak the mind of God would imply, would it not, that we have an active, thorough, working knowledge of the Scriptures. That we have devoted ourselves to knowing the Scripture so intimately that in a moment's notice, we're able to come bring the mind of God to bear on whatever circumstances or inquiries may come our way within the community of faith. That's the gift of prophecy. Now, as a caution, we're also instructed to test this prophetic word that someone may bring to you with two proofs. The first is the question, is it consistent with Scripture? See, God does not have a forked tongue. He does not speak out of two sides of his mouth. He will never contradict himself. And so if someone comes to us with a prophetic word and it violates the scriptural teaching on that matter, whatever it may be, we're to dis disregard it, dismiss it. It's not from God. The second proof is this. Is the character of this word in line with the upbuilding, encouraging, and consolation of the body? That's the work of edification. That's the purpose of prophecy in the church is to build up the church. And so is it consistent in character with that? Well, you may ask one more question. What on earth does prophecy have to do with us in this church today? As I've said, we're not all familiar with this role because of our particular church tradition. So what possible relevance does this have to us at Rio? 
Well, as far as it pertains to the gathering of the community in worship, which is the context of chapter 14 that Paul will be speaking to us about, the first is preaching. The first way that prophecy is still active in the church today is the prophetic word of preaching. Now, you can't call me a prophet. Please don't do that. Don't call Matt or Tom a prophet either. There's nothing special about the words I'm using right now. There's nothing magical in my language. What, what happens in prophecy is the Lord takes hold of my ordinary language, and His Holy Spirit infuses that with power to bring a spiritually dead person to life, if you will. He takes His gospel through the preached word and edifies His body. But prophecy isn't always a prepared sermon. Second way that we see it at work is speaking God's word and truth to one another. His truth in love to one another. Now, again, I wouldn't call you a prophet because you came to me and shared a word with me. However, the work of prophecy to speak forth the word of God is when a brother comes to me, for example, and he's hurting and despondent and he's given up on himself and he's full of self-loathing. For me to come to him and bring the mind of God to bear on his particular circumstance and say, brother, you're a dearly loved son of God, is in fact the act of prophecy. It's a prophetic word. And again, it's important to remember it will be consistent with God's word and have the character of building up, not tearing down. In the same way, we may not have magical words to to compose when we share the gospel with somebody. We do our best. We maybe fumble through the gospel narrative. Maybe we miss something or leave something out. And yet God can take that word and restore a person to life, bring somebody from death to life. And so he has given these gifts to the church for that purpose. And so Paul is going to address these gifts and he's not going to forbid them. He's not going to say tongues or prophecy are in themselves bad. What's bad, if there's a problem in the Corinthian church, it's that many are using these gifts in an unloving way. They're not using it for its intended purpose of building up the community of faith. And so, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 14.1, he begins this chapter with a directive that's actually rooted in everything he's just said in chapter 13, if you want to review it. He says, pursue love. And that verb pursue has the intent of continuously and proactively hunt after Agape, that word love, agape, it's the selfless giving to another. It's the, the self-emptying for the purpose of benefiting another. In other words, his command here, his, his exhortation is, be relentless in emptying yourself for the benefit of the community. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Because one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, that is the one who communicates the mind of God, speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And then he contrasts that building up prophetic word with the other gift in question, which is tongues in verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself because no one else understands what he's saying. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. It's in its proper context, of course, perhaps in the privacy of your own prayer life, but even more so to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, which as an aside is another permission he gives 
for the use of tongues in worship. If there's an interpreter, it may be understood by all and thus used for the edification of the body is the idea. So that the church may be built up. So you're, you're probably starting to think that I'm a broken record, and so is Paul. You're picking up on this mantra, are you not? He keeps saying built up or edification. These, these words kind of are synonymous. Built up, build up the church, build up the body, edify the body, all to be done for edification. And it's over and over and over again in this, in this chapter. He keeps exhorting the church to this building up work, but what on earth does that actually mean? We're obviously not talking about brick and mortar. We're talking about the living stones, which Paul has referenced in chapter 12 and and elsewhere. But still, what does that mean to build up the church? Well, we can say that the church is, quote, built up in two senses. By living stones, that is the believers present in the church community, sharpening one another by speaking the truth in love, by just doing life together, really, Living stones, we sharpen one another. That's part of the building up work. And secondly, we build up the church in the sense that we bring new converts, new people to the faith. We add to the pile of living stones from which God is creating His temple, if you will. And so there are two ways, one to another between believers and bringing more people into the fold. And both of these should always be in the forefront of our minds when we gather for worship, which may not come naturally to us. We We live in a consumer society. Um, Each one of us is, it's just almost hardwired in our our DNA somehow to do the things we like and not do the things we don't like. Um, To go to a a place like a, a worship service and expect a certain kind of sermon, a certain kind of song, a certain kind of air conditioning setting, a certain kind of comfy seat, a certain kind of something. And if we don't like it, we go to a different church. And while I'm not condemning that we find a church body that we resonate with or anything like that, a church community that in which we can thrive, I do want to suggest that there's a sense in which we come together to sort of rub shoulders, and that's not always a pleasant thing. It's uh, never the intent of church to come and be just me and God. Have you heard this? Perhaps if you've said it, I've been guilty of this mindset. Come to church and think, oh man, I just love it when we sing because it can just, oh, the whole world just goes away and it can be just me and God. But God hasn't designed us to be independent of one another. He's so wired you and I to be dependent upon community, so much so that it is utterly impossible for any one of us to see the fullness of God's character or to be shaped into the likeness of Christ apart from community, apart from that bumping into one another, rubbing shoulders, perhaps irritating each other. Well, how does that work? If I've lost you with that, let me, let me explain. You know, each one of us comes to the Word of God with our life experience, with our personalities, with our personal proclivities and felt needs. And from that, we draw a perspective in our heart and mind on who God is. Well, the importance of a perspective of God is that that will immediately directly dictate how you worship. The expression of your worship is so wrapped up in who you see God to be. For example, if my proclivities, my personality, my life experiences have formed in me a perspective of God that really emphasizes God's transcendence, His holiness, His otherness, I may feel I worship most fully with a hymn like Holy, Holy, Holy that looks upward and holy, holy, holy are you Lord. And that may 
give me the disposition in my heart, if you will, of singing with reverence and awe. I may bow my head or I may, I may look to, to imagine the highness of God. So physically it expresses itself because I believe that God is transcendent. I worship in a certain way. And to say the opposite, if you will, if my proclivities, if my personality, if my life experiences have given to me a perspective of God that is he's my friend and he is my my brother, and both of those, by the way, are in some sense um, a biblical vision of who God is. He is very real and very present among us. Then my disposition when I sing will probably be, first of all, more of, of a lyric song like Good, Good Father. And when I sing it, it may be with joy, with a sense of affection or gratitude. And that will be expressed physically, and you'll see it manifest with raised hands of a smile on my face, of a, uh, a tear running down my eye. There's this effective moment in that song. Um, God's eminence causes me to worship in a certain way. And now, can we all just be honest and say that sometimes we wish those transcendent standing still people and the eminent dancing crying people would kind of find a different service to worship in. We sometimes, we, you know, we're tempted, I think, to, to divide the church. But here's what I believe is the reason why we should guard against that. We should combat this temptation to divide based on those, those perspectives. Because both perspectives, if taken independent of one another, are equally right and equally incomplete. If all you see is God's transcendence, or if all you see is God's imminence, you're missing something. So why would God call you to cut together to worship then? If you all see something different in God, and you express that in different ways in worship, you know, the dancer standing next to the, the stoic thinker. Why? why? Why is it that we're all called to worship together? Well, I've used this illustration often just because I think it, it, it works. You know, I, I don't know why I would need to find a different one. So if you've heard me say it before, I, I'm sorry. But I want to tell you about my marriage with Julie. Okay, this is my wife, Julie. We've been married for a little over 12 years. We dated for probably three years before that. So let's just round it up to say 16 years. We've known each other, been dating, and, uh, and have been married. And when we first met, there couldn't be two more opposite personalities on this planet. There couldn't be two people who represented two entirely different things, more so than Julie and I did. She is the optimist, the, the, the smiling, joyful, glass half full, loves being with people, sort of this effervescent, I don't know why that word comes to mind, personality. And I tend to like, you know, quiet, study, be by myself. Maybe the glass is half empty at times. Any introverts out there? I'm an introvert. I know this is an odd calling for me, if that's the case, but it is. And uh, we couldn't be more opposite. And so in the beginning of our relationship, we butted heads like crazy. She drove me nuts. And she thought I was insane. She thought I was some weird, yeah, I'm sure, like, what's wrong with this guy? And over time, those things began to be charming. And I, at some point, something turned. And here's, here's the point for you in the congregation. At some point, those irritating things, when she would come in 30 minutes late with a, a song, when I'm in the deepest study, those things that were irritating 
turned in my mind and said, what does she see in life that I'm missing? What causes her to enter a room singing joyfully? I don't, I don't even have the category. That would never occur to me in a million years. And so I began to say, what is it? What is it that she sees? That I want to gain some of that perspective. See, there are marriages, unfortunately, that I think dissolve when the mentality is she's the, she's the crazy social person and I'm the dark, pessimistic, you know, whatever. You take your separate silos and corners and you distance yourself from one another. Well, we do that in the church, do we not? Oh, dancer. You know, when's the song going to end? We distance ourselves, and yet the call of God, the reason that he put in his divine wisdom, Julie and I together, is because he knew I was incomplete. My picture of life, my pursuit of life, my knowledge and walk with God, in fact, was incomplete until I saw life through Julie's eyes. In the same way, we as a church... We're living stones. You know what that means? Sometimes we're rigid. We don't like to be bent or broken. But we're going to clunk into each other because God's called us to do that. And it's for our good. It's for His glory and it's for our good. And so if there's a dancer standing next to you and you're the thoughtful traditionalist or if vice versa or anywhere in between, consider something. What is that brother or sister next to me, see in God that causes them to worship this way. And seek after that. Don't repel it. Seek after it because it's the only way, in fact, that you will be built up into Christ's image. And this is the spirit of Paul's message about building one another up. If there's one point, that's it, that he's making in this chapter. We'll continue on in verse 6. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And then he offers an illustration. He says, if even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, you may circle that word. It's important if you come back to study this passage. His concern is for intelligibility because intelligible words promote edification. How will anyone know what's being said if it's not intelligible? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker, a foreigner to me, which is in direct opposition to the purpose for which God gave these gifts to begin with. They shouldn't alienate us. They should unify us as many diverse members of the body are unified in one body. And so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, which it seems to me is a compliment, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do then? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also, which is a helpful corrective for anyone who would tend to fall off one extreme or the other. 
Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen, which means let it be so, agreement to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And so let's apply that to our own worship services for a second. When we sing, God hears your heart, but your brothers and sisters in this room can only benefit when you open your mouth and sing. In other words, there, there's this mentality I think sometimes that we can have, which is, you know, for whatever reason, I don't like to sing in public, don't like to be heard, especially by the person in front of me. So I'll just sing in my heart. I'll, I'll praise God quietly in my, in my mind and in my heart. Well, the problem with that is, of course, that God hears it, but He's commanded you to sing, and the reason He's commanded you to sing is to sharpen one another. And that's true from up here too. I have a different sort of vantage point and perspective of this room. And, it, and it's, it's actually really an amazing privilege to stand up here and be able to look out and see the different faces, each one representing to me a different story. Um, those of you whom I know very well anyway, I can look out and when I come in dragging, when I come in and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm heavy, I'm, I'm tired, or, or there's something even more difficult and something really hard going on in, in my life. I come in, for example, on a Sunday morning, and, and I look out and I see a guy over here who's, I'm going to purposely not look that way, so I'm not like, you know, you. I, I know all about you. No. I look over here and I see a guy who's, whose wife is chronically ill, whose kids have special needs, and whose job doesn't pay him enough to pay the bills. And I look over here and I see a marriage that's just begun, a newlywed couple. And I look over there and I see a, a guy who's, who's struggling in addiction. And I look this way and I see this woman who has just been divorced from her husband. And when I look and I see these, these faces and these stories, and I see this, and singing at the top of their lungs... It moves me. And I don't just mean, oh, that's... I mean deeply. It, it, it's shaped who I am, which is, of course, the purpose of this passage. It's absolutely shaped who I am, worshiping in the community of faith and being spurred on by you singing. Even if I don't know your story, looking out and knowing that the community of faith stands united in that way, if you think about it, it's the only time in our service, with the exception of the rare recited creed, when we unify our voices. You sit somewhat passively. Of course, I don't really mean that. You, you sit there actively listening, I hope, and, and participating in the sermon, but your voice isn't doing anything. Physically, you're not doing anything. Singing involves the entire body, and we all do it together, and it's, and it's a beautifully unifying thing. And so, when you're preparing to come to a worship service, think about how your participation in it might affect and edify the others in the room. Well, I said that there were two aspects of building up the church. The first was believers sharpening other believers, but the second is this. Um, it's the witness of our worship to those who are unbelievers in our midst, which is where Paul turns next. In verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, that is the unintelligible self-serving language, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? 
If you look in Acts chapter 2, this is actually what happens in Pentecost when the tongues of fire come and everyone starts speaking in tongues. These outsiders on the, on the perimeter are going, what's going on? And they literally say, are these people drunk? So we don't want to have people come in and not be able to understand what's going on. So he goes on in verse 24, but if all prophesy, that is speaking the mind of God to one another in intelligible language, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And that right there is the gospel story we, we reenact every Sunday, every Saturday now. Whenever we gather for worship, what those two verses just said is the liturgy that we follow in our worship. And it's on purpose to form us. We behold God's presence among us. That in light of His glory, exposes our sin in which our necessary response then is to fall on our faces before Him, humble ourselves, lay ourselves low, and worship God and declare that He's really among us. And finally, I'll conclude with what Paul says in verse 26. What then, brothers, what should we do with all these things that we've just said? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Whatever your gift, whatever thing you may bring with you to church, let it all be done for building up. And then finally in verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've called us to community together. We love one another, Lord, as you give us grace to do so. And yet, we confess there are times, Lord, that we, we come here with maybe misaligned priorities or, or motives. So we pray, Lord, that you'd correct us gently. And, and the love of your Spirit, Lord, that you would use this passage even as we go from this place tonight. And we mull it over in our minds, Lord. Would you remind us that we are one of many living stones, and it's our purpose and our mission in this church to speak the truth and love to one another, to build one another up, and yes, also to share your word with the unbelievers and outsiders that may come. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you for that purpose. Ask that you'd give us much grace as we seek to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.